0: Good morning, church. We have scripture reading today. um, And for scripture reading today, um, we are actually going to read it out loud together. Um, It is good for us to declare God's word out loud, not only out of respect for God's word and out of unity with his people, but also because the passage that we are going to read today can serve as a creed for our faith or a declaration of what we believe. So the passage today is Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Um, The verses are going to be on the screens, you can see it there, or if you'd like to read them from a Bible, there are Bibles in pews in front of you and you can find the passage on page 1786. So if you're able, would you actually stand with me as we declare what we believe? Philippians chapter three, starting at verse seven, going through verse 12. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Amen, thank you.
1: Thanks, Becca. If you were here last week, you'll know that Today is a continuation of my sermon from last week since I didn't get through it all. And you might be like, well, Nick, aren't we supposed to get a special new sermon every week? And look, I'm not an entertainer. That's not how this works, where I'm just supposed to teach God's word. What I always tell the interns is sermons shouldn't be boring so much that people listening have to exert themselves to pay attention, but they're not performances or entertainments, right? So, um, yeah, I hope you don't think that way about it. All right, so let's jump in. One of the things we talked about last week with this passage was that um, three times in the early verses of the chapter, Paul explicitly says refers to our confidence as human beings, and that he's going to argue in the passage that it's supposed to be in Christ himself, but he he makes clear that everybody needs that. God actually wants us to have a certain kind of confidence in Christ. There are certain ways in which people have believed in Christianity where they just are just always unsure, right? They're like, well, I hope, you know, but And there's a certain extent to which we have some some humility about how sincere we are and how God might interact with that. But at the same time, God wants us to actually have a spiritual confidence belonging to Jesus. And it's important to recognize that that isn't the same thing as being knowledgeable, right? One of the things that happens in secular culture like ours is um, we don't think of knowledge as the truth. If something is the truth, kind of like Big T, then that, in a sense, is something you can't manipulate or use. It'll naturally have an effect on you, and people don't love that concept. If you call something—like if you're at work or something or at school and you call something, quote, the truth, the the likelihood somebody in the room is going to have, like, an anaphylactic shock to that is decently high, right? But if you just say something's knowledge, everybody's cool with that. And part of the reason is is that secularity has its own superstition, its own magic, which is if I accumulate knowledge— I can either use that as, like, life hacks, or I, can contr- or I can convert that into technology by which then I can exert into the world whatever I want which is good for my life, which is very similar to, like, ancient paganism, right? Which is, like, I get certain knowledge of the spiritual world. I utilize that through spells and just certain actions, and then I can, like, affect things in the world the way I want, which is why Peter Kreef, philosopher at Boston College, once said, there's a way to believe in science and secularity that is indistinguishable from ancient superstition and witchcraft or magic. Right? There's—because it's not—superstition is not so much about a a belief's primitiveness, but about how much it is not rightly related to what's actually happening in the world around us. We're infusing stuff that we assume is the case, but actually isn't the case. you're like, well, what is—how does that relate to secularity? Well, see, in secularity, we think we are ends in ourselves. We don't think we were made in the holy image of God and we belong to him. And so we have this view that we carry around with us and we hold and we assume is true. It is a completely unprovable view that we are in a relationship merely and just to ourselves, and therefore can define our own lives, define who we are, define what we want to do, define how we want to live. And we believe that very devoutly. We can't prove it scientifically or philosophically. It is a superstition, and we try to uphold it by means of utilizing the things we can control to make sure that superstition we hold can be the dynamic of our life. That's called magic, right? And the fact that we don't do it by thinking we appeal to unseen spirits, but we manipulate things in front of us to make them do what we want is, to use a pun, immaterial. The reason why this is important is what that means is there are large groups of people, both in the ancient world and now, that don't see what we learn as something we're meant to discover, and therefore discover our nature, and submit to and be conformed unto its image, but something where we accumulate the knowledge and use it the way we want to. Being knowledgeable isn't the same thing as believing, right? The way the Apostle Paul says it in 1 Timothy is, there are people who will be ever learning and yet never capable of acknowledging the truth. Believing it, and then ultimately having confidence in it. There's so many things in the world that people are like, oh, yeah, I know that. And you're like, But you see, some of those things are just things that they're, they're knowledge you can utilize. Some of them are truths that impinge upon you and your life. And therefore, they are truths or not. And if they are, then they tell you what to do. You don't control them. So what the apostle wants us to feel confident, but not by the accumulation of knowledge so that we can manipulate things relative to how we define ourselves from ourselves. The wrong kind of being secular. I can't get into Charles Taylor and the right kind of being secular right now, okay? But there's another sense in which we need to recognize that there are truths that we come to discover, which also tells us things about ourselves, that even if we don't want them to be true about the ourselves, they are true about ourselves. The most fundamental being we are image bearers of the holy God, and created to be his stewards in the expression of ourselves in existence. Now, therefore, this passage in Philippians 3 assumes that part of being a human being is needing to have a certain kind of confidence, but that they're not all created equal. And therefore, the basis of your confidence, by which you face all the difficulties you're going to face, and by which you deal with all the difficulties you'll find inside yourself, is incredibly important. Right? Now, sometimes we, we don't really know what we're needing here, but every human being, because we're like fragile creatures and because at the same time um, we are moral creatures, we need confidence actually in both areas. We need one that faces our, our fragility and our desire to exist long-term with meaning, and the second one is we have to know that we deserve it on some level. Everybody believes they're a good person. Like if you do—if you ever do prison ministry, and you sit down with people in prison who actually did commit the crimes, they still have a reason why they believe they're a good person. Everybody finds a way—even people who are like— like people who engage in self-hatred and self-atonement, they are still destroying themselves by means of those self-atonements so that they can feel reasonably like a good enough person to go on with the day. Like there's something inside of us where we have to believe we have a future, And we have to believe we're good enough to deserve one. And as you look at Philippians 3, Paul is basically saying, don't you see the best hope in both of those, the greatest confidence in both of those, is Christ himself. Right? That he is the one who died and was risen from the dead. He is the only practical and empirical hope that you can conquer death, truly. You can keep hoping for the singularity and like that you can upload your brain. Okay, maybe, we'll see. But... Jesus is the human being who makes the empirical claim that he literally rose from the dead and has offered the capacity for that to us. And so in that defeating of the greatest human fear, if we're paying attention to what we ought to fear, he can give us a place in dealing with all fears. But then also, like, there are lots of people who succeed at things and they hate themselves, the person they've become in doing so. Like, human beings have to actually believe that, like, when you get to the place of success, you sort of, in some sense, meaningfully deserve to be there. That is, we have to receive or, or experience or maybe achieve what we sometimes call righteousness, a right standing. And the apostle says that is what the death of Christ, preceding the resurrection of Christ, was meant to purchase or create for us, a righteousness that we could receive, so that in standing in Christ himself— we can both know that there is a way in which we will pass through whatever we pass through into a final supremacy, like a triumph over whatever it is that stands against us as human beings, and that when we get there, we won't be ashamed to do so. And he said, if you know those two things, if you know them in your bones, you really can have the confidence necessary to face life and to pursue in it progress and joy, right? Now, sometimes um, people— are considered—like, like, as opposed to what—and in this passage, what the Apostle Paul says is, it's as opposed to what he calls the flesh. And the, the reason why this is important is, is that Paul does use—it's sarx in Greek. It's like the generic word for, like, meat or flesh or being embodied as a human being. And some people have actually walked away from the Christian faith altogether or consider it inhuman because it sounds to them like, Christianity is so dualistic, believing in the soul as against the body, that we have to, like, reject our physicality as human beings, and even our our desires, and, like, we shouldn't be hungry or something, right? Like, it's like anti-body or anti-being embodied as a physical person, and the word flesh doesn't really mean that. If you look at, like, the theologians throughout the history of the church, there's three great enemies to Christian spirituality that they say that we face— the world, the flesh, and the devil. Have you heard that before? I added a picture of the Virgin Mary punching Satan in the face just for fun in that one. But like, but, that we're, but we're opposing these three things, right? And if we, you understand the nature of why those three things, it helps you understand what the flesh means. So, for example, the devil, right? The best context we can get from the Bible is that the devil or devils are like essentially fallen angels. That is, that they're creations of God meant for a specific task with a specific thing to do, and they have become disconnected from it. They're in rebellion from God, and they're disconnected from their original purpose. And so they're using their being in nature for something other than what they were made for and out of relationship with their maker. And they're not redeemed. That that isn't, and as far as we can tell from Scripture, can't be restored. Similarly, the world. The world is creation, and how creation functions in culture and people and stuff, disconnected from its creator, not conscious of God, and doing therefore that which it wasn't made for right? The, the world in the Bible is not the planet. It's the existence of creation overseen by a humanity that is not conscious of God, connected to him, or acting in accordance with its purpose, right? So you get to the flesh. Well, then what's the flesh? It's the exact same thing except in the human person. The flesh is the human person embodied and sold as a being God created in his holy image that is disconnected from him, and they're therefore disconnected with their own purpose— and they're acting out of that purpose, and therefore in their embodiment, they are doing what their body isn't for. They are living in accordance with it in reference to itself, rather than it in reference to its identity, purpose, and creation, and acting in what it's for, which the Bible calls holiness. Right? Which means to be set apart for a specific purpose, and focusing on that purpose in purity right? And so all three of those enemies of ours are whether or not we will be personally complicit with those three things in creation that are disconnected from God and not functioning according to their purpose. So when Paul says, my confidence is not in the flesh, what he's saying is, my confidence can't be in me, in reference to me, unconnected from my creator, and unconnected from the purpose for which he made me. I have to have a confidence that's rooted in knowing who I am in God, being reconnected with him by the way he has reconnected me with him, which is by the death and resurrection of Jesus, and believing in Jesus, and then in re-receiving that divine holy image identity so as to know what I'm here to do, which the Bible calls stewardship, knowing what our calling is, and then living in accordance with that, which is what the Bible calls holiness or godliness. Does that make sense? And that's the opposite of the flesh. And he says, listen, whenever we pursue our confidence in the flesh, whether it's religiously or secularly, whether it's superstitiously or scientifically, whenever we are—our are, actions are, in a sense, disconnected from God, our own created purpose, and in the working out of it, it always putrefies. And all of those goods of creation and science and spirit and whatever, friendship and all the goods, they, they can't become themselves as they're meant to be because they're disconnected from their origin and their purpose, right? Now, um, in the passage, as the apostle argues this, he's like, first, consider what things really are, and then in comparison, what is the real difference between them? And then thirdly, and then think about how that's supposed to affect you, right? So that you could say consideration, comparison, and confirmation. Okay, let's move through the first two rather quickly. What that means is, is that our confidence is rooted in belonging to Jesus the Christ, and our part in that is by believing in him. Not just getting knowledge about him, not just coming to church and hearing stuff, not even reading the Bible, or being religiously interested, but by actually believing in him. And what that would mean is is that you can think of that in terms of the authority of the knowledge itself. When we just want to be knowledgeable, but not respond to the truth, we are sovereign over the knowledge, and we use it for our purposes. When we recognize that Jesus the Christ is in himself the truth, and is capital T, capital T, the truth, he bec- his truth and his person become sovereign over us, and we are the thing manipulated or shaped. So this way we manipulate creation. This way we are formed into the image of God himself, right? Or reformed or conformed, formed with. Right? The word conform doesn't necessarily—means that you become like those around you, which when the people around you are like foolish teenagers that don't want to dress code, but they all dress exactly the same, like that kind of thing, and you conform, it's kind of like, oh, you're not really becoming yourself doing that. But when the thing you're being conformed to is the perfect human self as displayed in the man Jesus Christ, and you're conformed to his perfect humanity, then you you are becoming yourself as you were meant to be created. Right? Conforming is necessary for us to be formed. When he says, then, that everything else he considers garbage, he doesn't mean everything in creation is garbage. He's saying everything in comparison to the supremacy of Jesus, ordering everything, is by comparison worthless even to the point of saying that it's garbage. Does that make sense? And so he starts with a reconsideration of everything, right? You have to understand how to reckon everything. See, worldliness is the idea where you look at creation and you don't see things for what they are. You see them for something else. You see them within the secular or the non-God-oriented culture in which you participate. And so you reckon everything a certain way. So you can look at somebody who's poor and you can reckon them a certain way. You look at a certain kind of status and you reckon it or think about it at a certain way. When you come to God, what he's saying is, you have to, like, reorder how you think about all this stuff, what all of it means. Everything needs a new value, and the thing that starts with getting a new value is the man, Jesus Christ. That he's not some irrelevant dead carpenter who started, like, a fairly ethically feminine movement that Nietzsche really didn't like, but that he is, like, the risen God-man who can recreate your humanity from the inside out through the power of his spirit when you give yourself to him in faith because of his death and resurrection. That that has to be re-reckoned, and then it has to be compared, right? You have to say, well, if Jesus is better than worldliness or the flesh, how much more? Because you see, there's gonna be times where you're just gonna be discouraged. You're gonna be wonder if he's really there. You're gonna, right? And if the value is real close, you'll easily slip back. You have to get back to where you believe that the knowledge of the— of Christ Jesus our Lord is supreme, and that in comparison, everything, even the good things in creation are worthless. And Paul says, look, not only do I reckon it is worthless, but like, I literally have lost everything. I mean, he's literally in prison when he writes this. He says, for his sake, I have lost everything. And here's the thing. I'm not mad about it. My heart's full of joy because they can't take anything from me. All that stuff in comparison to supremacy. Jesus is worthless. And when they threw me in prison because of Jesus, and I got to serve Jesus in being thrown in prison, taking that stuff away from me They didn't really take anything from me, right? So that comparison, the proportional difference, is incredibly important, right? Now, the things that the apostle uses for those differentials are two things. One is the supremacy of Jesus Christ, or the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and the second is the righteousness of Christ, right? And these are really important to get clear, otherwise we will not understand the gospel. So the first one he says, I consider everything a liability, as compared to the superiority of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I talked a good bit about this last week in terms of what that verse means literally. But one way to think of it is this, is that when you understand what Jesus does and how he operates, everything else by comparison is like garbage. That is, things that are no longer even capable of being used for their original purpose. Because here's the thing. Without Jesus, as things slide into what the Bible calls worldliness, they're disconnected from their creator and their created purpose. Things become garbage in the sense that nothing is being used for its original purpose. It can't function that way. Okay, who who in this room is old enough to remember the movie The Rock with Nicolas Cage and what's his name, the Scottish man? Sean Connery. Okay, so this is is a little bit older movie now. Um, The premise of the movie is some people from the military take, like, chemical weapons to Alcatraz and point them at San Francisco and demand a bunch of money for reasons that are ethical in their eyes and not in other people's eyes. And so Sean Connery and Nicholas Cage, who's like an analyst or something, and a bunch of Navy SEALs are supposed to go over and like neutralize the problem, right? And so they're not actually supposed to steal all the missiles back because that isn't going to work because there's too many Marines there to kill them, but they have to actually get into each one of the missiles and pull out the guidance chip Because if you pull out the guidance chip, that missile can't do anything. It'll just fly, right? Because if they just like destroy the Missiles—it's just going to like contaminate everything and kill everybody, right? But they, if they take this guidance ship out, that missile can never be what it was meant to be. It needs a chip. You see, in a sense, the supremacy of Christ is not about like being some kind of desert um, ascetic. It's not—it's not about like saying the world is all bad. There's nothing but garbage in the world, and I'm just going to sit like and contemplate the mystic nature of Jesus, right? Doesn't mean like you have to hate deer hunting or shopping if you love Jesus because everything's garbage, right? What it means is, is that Jesus is not just the supreme one. He is the guidance chip for everything. And so the only way you could get creation back to mean something is if it gets its guidance chip back, right? So in in that sense, Jesus is our moral savior and our spiritual savior, but he's also like our— the guidance chip for our being and how we understand who and what we are. And so by recognizing he is supremely important, what what the apostle means is like, by having Jesus in his place, supremely, and that word, remember from last week, is a hierarchical word. It's not a distance word. It's a place word. When Jesus, the knowledge of him, is supreme, he that gives guidance to everything, its purpose and meaning. So you know who you are. You know who everybody else is. They know who they are. And then everything that we are hierarchically over, which is everything in creation, remember Genesis 1? Right? We're created as God's vice regents in creation to steward over everything. So then once you get the humans back where they're supposed to be, their then relationship to everything in creation can be reordered. Everything gets its guidance chip. Does that make sense? Otherwise, nothing does. And because of that, Jesus has to be on top. Then humans can be what they're supposed to be. Science can be what it's supposed to be. Friendship can be what it's supposed to be. Work can be what it's supposed to be. Family can be what it's supposed to be. Cross-country skiing can be what it's supposed to be. Right? Everything. But only if, hierarchically, in the flow of creation, Jesus is back where he's supposed to be. No more worldliness, no more flesh, and no more submitting to the disconnected relationship of the devils. Right? You can see this—there's a number of places where you can see this one verses uh, in 2 Corinthians 4-6. For God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, which goes all the way back to creation. You see see this argument I'm making that it's it's creational, right? He says, the same God who said, let light exist in the darkness on the first day of creation. He made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see? The same God who gave light and then created creation the way it was supposed to be took Christ right, and made his light reshine out of Jesus because the creation got off track. So now the, that light of creation, what things really mean, shines out of the face of Jesus. It's the very glory of God, and then that gets put in us. That line then sh- light then shines in us when we believe, and he reorders things towards redemption. If we belong to him, right, he does it in our hearts is the metaphor. You can look at this. as These passages also talk about the knowledge of God or the knowledge of Christ, um, The second thing is the righteousness of Christ, right? The idea that in the knowledge of Christ, we can be delivered, we can know who we are, and we can make it through this life and into the next. There's also the question of our moral standing with God, right? The Bible starts with this idea that we're made as bearers of the image of the Holy God, and then also we are broken. The more we are disconnected from our Creator, the more we go through this process that the Bible calls depravity, or we we grow increasingly broken. So we see things wrong. We suppress the truth. We we get affected in so many different ways, and what has to happen is a restoration of righteousness, the Bible teaches. We need to be put back in a right standing with God, because God's relationship with creation is both structural and moral. He's a morally serious being, and you might be like, Nick, you're gonna talk about hell now. Listen. The idea that God is morally serious is is very beautiful good news. Okay, if you haven't been on a mission trip, or been, or been with somebody who's been profoundly abused or harmed or had their parent murdered, and they are angry at God because they don't think God is morally serious enough to deal with whatever happened, that their family got killed in a genocide or whatever, and then you, you, you tell them, listen, God will punish every sin either on the cross of Christ or in hell. And to see them release and say, Okay, I am seen. My life does matter. What happens here, right? And to see them come to faith because of the reality of the morally, moral seriousness of God, right? We need to recognize that we also have to recognize— we've just become kind of pansies in America because we don't fight anymore, right? And so we just, like, like we clutch our pearls and like, oh my gosh, did I, I cut? it's a paper cut, right? We can't deal with a God that is serious and strong, right? But that's very serious, and so we have to reckon with His righteousness. And so what God has done, instead of just giving us over to depravity and then damnation, He has offered a way for us to receive a righteousness through the death and resurrection of Jesus. External from us, that we receive a new standing, but that standing has a medicative effect where it actually changes us to make us righteous. So it's not just some game where we stay as wicked as we can possibly be, and then God, like, paints a white paint on us, and then we're just kind of like righteous. No, we get— purified by the righteousness of Jesus, and then it is conformative. It changes us to make us like the Jesus who is righteous. Now, one way to think of that is this. There's this tree in um, the tropics called the the choking fig tree, and it's this tree that will um, get planted near uh, normal size, usually a quite large tree, And it doesn't have enough fundamental structure in itself to grow. And so what it does is it grows up next to the tree and it puts vines around it and it vines its way up the tree and it chokes the tree that it's growing around. And ultimately that tree dies and it even rots out from the middle of it. So that you you they have these in the Everglades, for example, but they have them south of that as well, where you, you can come across this tree which looks like a kind of almost like netting and there's nothing in the middle of it. And You see, what the apostle is saying is when we try to seek righteousness by the flesh, even when we try to pursue righteousness by pursuing something that's really good, this is what we do. He's like, listen, I was a Pharisee. I literally was following the biblical law of God. Like, you can't get a better like fleshly pursuit of righteousness than to follow God's laws. But he said, but here was the problem. Because I didn't have a picture of who God was in me, because I didn't really know what he was like in inhabiting these laws. I assumed he was like me in how he inhabited and executed these laws. So as a wickeder man than I dreamed I was, I came to these laws, and I became judge and jury and actioner and executioner of these laws, as this person who wasn't yet transformed and changed. And so what happened was, even though I thought I was doing the will of God, I actually was choking the very beautiful thing God gave us, the law itself. And I was destroying it while I was destroying and deforming myself, growing into this tree that had no structural integrity, that was choking the very thing I was trying to be righteous on. And there's thousands and millions of men and women in the world who that is how their life is operating. There is something by which they are grabbing onto, in which they can count their righteousness. I'm a hardworking man. These kids are going to turn out great. I go to church and I believe in God, or I'm a good person. Right? Like, science is the future, and I'm committed to the empirical method. Like, I could go on and on and on. And these can all be good things. They're all, in fact, they usually are good things. Most people are not like, I'm going to worship Satan. I'm going to stab puppies with ice picks. I'm going to cheer against the Packers, you know, things like that. And and um, that's not what people do. People choose something that they think is a good, and then they climb it like a choking fig tree. and They choke the thing itself, and they end up, after it, rots away with so little structural integrity themselves, and they end up falling over and dying. And that's what Paul said about becoming a man of the law, right? You get to First Timothy, and he says, look what happened to me. I." followed this as as strongly as I possibly could. And in the end, he says, I was a blasphemer. That is, I spoke for God, and I spoke really the opposite of what God wanted. And then he said, I was a persecutor. That is, I thought I was the one following God and purifying all the followers of God. I really was hurting the people who were really following God, even though I—and I wasn't. And then he says, I was a violent man. And Jesus said, listen, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, right? That, That if you really know God, if you really do know him, and you are being reshaped in his image. You really look like him. One of the things that would be unmistakable about you is that you're a peacemaker. Right? If there's any way to avoid fighting, if there's any way to bring people together, if there's any way to do that, you're interested in that. Not division and fighting and winning. Right? And he's like, and I became a violent man. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. I gave my whole life to following God, and I ended up literally the opposite in every important way. He's like, that's That's what it looks like even to follow the best possible thing by the flesh. He said the opposite of that is when I realized who Christ was, and he became like the guidance for everything. When I reoriented and re-reckoned and re-compared everything, and Jesus became what he was meant to be then the law became what it was meant to be, and I became what I was meant to be. I knew what the face of God looked like in the face of Christ, and I knew the nature and ordering and how I had to change and how I needed to grow like him, and all of that reset itself so that I could actually follow him and know him and be the thing I was wanting to be so that I could receive the righteousness of Christ. But then in doing so, I began to walk in the gift of the righteousness of Christ. Right? Churches like High Point that are out of like the evangelical tradition— Um, Right? Like, there's this—what's called—it was called in American history the revivalist tradition. That is, like, all fundamentalists, basically, um, most all evangelicals, almost every minority church, because all the, like, highfalutin southern denominations thought that you should teach American slaves that they should obey their masters and do what they're told and never steal anything—all the moral—all these moral commands. It was the, like, crazy evangelical revivalists that, like, preached to slaves in the South so there could be a, a Christian that was not a white man's religion, right? And so almost all of the black churches came out of Methodism or Baptists, basically these, like, crazy preachers, right? Um, and then also almost all the charismatics. So that's like a lot of Christians in America, okay, come from this, like, revivalist tradition. And what—the way the, ba- the revivalist tradition tends to preach this is we are condemned before God, right? All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, right? We all deserve damnation. The wrath of God is being displayed towards creation, right? Like. Romans Road, baby, right? And like the only thing that can happen is, is that if we believe in Jesus, right, God will interpose Christ's righteousness for our wickedness, so that we can have right standing with God and so be saved and go to heaven, right? Is that right? That's exactly right. Okay, now, but when you look at this passage, is the finality of the finished work of Christ such that there is nothing in process in this passage? Right now, if you read this passage care- carefully, there is process and participation all through this passage, and the fundamental gift of the righteousness of Jesus from the outside also. They are both simultaneously true. So in that sense, it would be like somebody driving drunk, getting in a car wreck with somebody, nearly killing them. Both get rushed to the hospital. The person who is the victim turns out has the exact same blood type as the guy who hit him, right? And he's able to interpose with the police to stop some stuff from coming down on him so that it doesn't come down as hard. And then he realizes he has the same blood type, and the guy needs a couple units of blood, and he gives his blood for him. Because one of the things that happens after surgery sometimes is like, you'll be like super pale, you're not really recovering very well, and it's actually because you you lost too much blood. And one of the best ways to make you heal is they just give you blood. And in doing so, you have like new life. And your body can, can actually operate the way it was meant to operate. So it's, in one sense, completely natural. And in another sense, it's completely a gift from the outside. In that sense, the righteousness of Jesus makes the indwelling of the Spirit, God, with us possible. That creates a new spiritual nourishment for our bodies to recover. So we both— Supernaturally begin to recover as human beings, and naturally do because we we're always made in the image of God. We were always capable of being what God meant us to be, but we have this internal spiritual capacity now. These two working together allow us to begin to walk with and be with and be, belong to Christ, so that we are not just declared righteous, but we are then declared righteous to be indwelled with and given this life blood, so as to recover and to be the thing Christ made us to be all along. And in that thing, we find ourselves energetically striving, even though receiving that life is a complete and total gift. And those two things operate simultaneously. And if you don't understand that they operate simultaneously, either you'll believe. You believe in Jesus. Your life doesn't have to change. You can be like the wickedest person on earth. You're just gonna go to heaven. Like, it's totally fine. And then everybody hates your religion because you remained like a complete idiot, and you say you believe in Jesus, and everybody knows God couldn't possibly really work that way, and that isn't really grace. Or you become a works-based, like, I gotta earn my salvation. Who knows if God really approves of me? And person. And so you can't heal because there isn't grace, and you can't grow because there isn't exertion. I always chuckle when I hear the Stanford philosophers and psychologists talk about like how they discovered the growth mindset and how important it is, right? The idea that like don't dwell on all the things you have to feel guilty about, all your failures, but like think about how you are better than you were the day before. How can you grow a little bit today, right? Okay, Paul's the one in Philippians—this is 2,000 years before the Stanford guys, right? I, I exist, I minister to you for your joy and progress. You're okay you're okay. We can think about moving forward. Let's progress. Right? God gives grace to lay aside the cost and doom of our sin, make us conscious of its meaning, and lead us forward into be like him, like him, so that we can focus on growth, becoming what we were meant to be, rather than being stuck in the self-hatred of what we were. This is just more effective. Right? Now, What that means is, is that as the apostle says, here's how this works. It's not just that we believe in Jesus, our sins are forgiven, we receive Christ, and now we're saved, and now we go to heaven. But that begins a—this connection with Christ. We're, quote, found in him. We belong to him. We are one with him, such that we actually experience life like Christ experienced and lived his life. And so he's like, my life is now going to be like the life of Jesus. So I'm not just going to be like, the resurrection, and I'm going to have my best life now, and God's going to give me money, and everything's going to be fantastic, and my marriage is going to be great, and my kids are going to think I'm super awesome and go to the schools I choose for them. No, he he says, listen, there's there's some things that I want, and those things are specifically connected to the life of Jesus. He says, now that I belong to Jesus, I have his righteousness, and I see the supremacy of the knowledge of him. He's like, here's what I want so bad. I want to know him That is to see God in the the face of Christ more clearly, and to actually know what God is like, and to take personal pleasure and find a personal, personalized relationship with God himself, right? And then he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And now some people have have thought, like, what that probably means is something like, well, I want to be raised from the dead. I want to, like, survive death, right? But see, that's actually the last part of the verse, to somehow— experience the resurrection from the dead. That's not what he means here. When he says, I want to experience the power of the resurrection, he's not talking about actually rising from the dead only. He's saying, in this present life, as I live right now, this minute, I want to, in this moment, experience the power of the resurrection. Now, if you cross-reference that with the book of Ephesians, the apostle says there, he says, he talks about the life of the church in Galilee. He says, it's the same power that he exerted in the spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So what the apostle says is, everything that supernaturally operates among God's people in the church and in our faith is the power of the Holy Spirit. That power that comes from the Holy Spirit is the exact same power that raised Jesus as a dead human being to life again, everlastingly. That power is present in all the things God does. It's the same power because it's the same powerful person, the Holy Spirit. Specifically, and this means, like if you read the context of the New Testament, it means miracles. This means supernatural spiritual gifts. It means a number of things. But here, it particularly means the experience of pursuing the good in Christ. That is, trying to be holy, seeking to follow Jesus, trying to know and do the will of God. So the power of the resurrection isn't just like being physically healed or some like breakthrough in your life. But it's also like you're having an argument and you keep your mouth shut. Right? Or like, You are afraid that all these days of going to work for your family is really just you being exploited as a man or a woman, and that nobody's ever going to thank you, and it just feels like you're getting played, and you're a sucker. But you say, no, actually, I believe family is an inherent good. I believe my marriage is an inherent good. I believe that providing for my kids is an inherent good. I'm giving them the gift of life. It's their job to figure out what they're going to do with it. I will bless them with a gift. I will let myself be exploited for the good of others as is natural and good and my purpose and then we'll see how God blesses it. Right? There are a thousand ways in which we decide we see the will of God it's terrifying because it costs us and hurts it is difficult we see worldliness and it looks easier in our heart there's a part of the flesh that says choose sloth. Right? There's a great like, Latin word. It sounds so much more sophisticated when you say that. But like, and you say, no, I'm going to do this thing God wants me to do. I'm going to exert—I'm going to choose it. I'm going to—I'm going to have confidence. I'm going to have faith, and I'm going to do it. And he said, it's in that moment where you experience the power of the resurrection. The, The Holy Spirit's power to help you take this step towards something like godliness is the power of the resurrection, and you're experiencing it in your life when you have faith and actually try to follow this Jesus. Right? And then the third thing he says is the fellowship of his sufferings. See, he's saying—he said well, see, he says, I want to know that his personally experience the fellowship of his sufferings, meaning—so for example, I've talked to a number of people who have literally been in combat in the armed forces. And sometimes I literally ask them this, or I try to get a sense of how they feel. I said, listen, uh, I'll say, would you give up everything that you suffered in the military for not having had to go through the traumas of it? Right? If, if we could just like wipe it out of your past, so it's not even there. Would you do it? Right? And I know some people who like, I mean, they still have nightmares. They still wake up with nightmares, right? And I've never had anybody say yet, yes. They would say, I mean, just the thing in itself, sure, I mean, I didn't want to go to war, but, like, I, the people, the men I stood with, the men I fought with, and the fact that I did it for my country, and I actually, I believed that it was the best thing I could do at that time, are things I will never, I don't want to give up, I will never give up. And the suffering was the cost of it, right? You see the idea? That's just a shadow of, like, what it means to say the fellowship of sharing and sufferings. You see, what, what the apostle is saying is, when I know Jesus, and then I walk in the power of the resurrection towards living like him, that's going to evoke suffering. It's going to evoke suffering of circumstance. People might, I just might be a victim of something in my life, and I might have to bear under it morally, right? I might be suffer of persecution. I might do something Jesus wants me to do, and I might be persecuted for it. People might attack me. Or it might just be of deprivation. I might say, I think Jesus wants me to go live on this part of town, and it's just not gonna be as nice. Or I'm gonna go Like, I'm gonna be a missionary, and like, there's a lot of comforts I'm not gonna have that I would have at home, right? All of those deprivations or sufferings, what he's saying is, there's— they're not worth comparing to the fellowship of participating with Jesus himself in his own purpose and mission, and knowing he's with you, and knowing that that pursuit is noble. You see, once there's a change in the status of righteousness in your heart, and the guidance ship of the supremacy of the knowledge of Christ is there, you don't want to avoid suffering. Not when it's noble, not when it's good, not when you can walk through it with him and with people who belong to him. It becomes this privilege that you wish you could avoid the pain, but you would never change your course. And the apostle says, I want to know that. I want my life to be wrapped up in the personal experience of that suffering and the fellowship that comes from it. So far that he says— I ultimately want to be transformed and made like him through his or in his death. And it doesn't say in his death. It says to his death, technically. Which means, how far does this go, and how does it really happen? He's like, when I walk all the way to the death of Jesus, the perfect death, and therefore the perfect living, I will be changed to be like him. The more I accept Christ's death, and I live and die and suffer like him, the more I will walk in that perfect humanity. Like Jesus dying, who—he didn't have to die. He did not have to accept that. He had to know exactly who he was, exactly why he was there, exactly what his purpose was, exactly what his calling was, exactly what his destiny was. He had to actually love the people he was saving. He had to hate the destruction being done to them that would damn them. He had to have—he had to have perfect humanity. He had to know exactly who he was in his purpose, and he had to rejoice in it. It says in Hebrews 12 that when he looked at the cross, he scored the shame of the thing. It didn't matter to him. It didn't compare. It was garbage to avoid it because of the joy of being who he was meant to be in himself. And we have a similar destiny, not to be the savior of the world, but to walk with Jesus in the specific purposes of the stewardship of our lives, unto perfect obedience— i.e. his death. And if we walk that entirely, we will be conformed more completely. And he said, I want to know that. I want to experience it myself. As far as, I want to take this as far as it can possibly go. I want to exert faith in every way it can be exerted. I want to, I want to do it. I want to know him. I want to experience the power. I want to walk in the suffering all the way to death. And then he says this, and then, I'll just maybe like pop up at the resurrection. Like the strangest locution here is he says, it says, if then I should find. It's not something he like, and then I'm going to get the resurrection. Or then what I want to know is resurrection. you know, he's like, he's, it's kind of like you're pushing through these brambles and they're cutting you and scraping you, you feel like you're going to believe it. And you push through this, all of a sudden it just pops open and you're like at the beach. And you're like, how did I get here? And you see that's what he's saying. He's like, he's like, I want to know Jesus, and I want to experience the power, and I want to walk in the suffering, and I want to walk all the way to death to be conformed to him. And then, like, when I get there, I'll sort of like, I should just experience the resurrection from the dead. Because you can see at this, at that point, there's no more exerting on your part. Right? Like, you, you have to exert faith all the way through all those other steps. And you get to that point of dying with Jesus, And Jesus didn't even have to raise himself from the dead, right? Like, as God, he could just be like, I rose myself from the dead. I did the creation. I did the redemption. It says, says, God the Father, through the person of the Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead, right? Not because only the Holy Spirit could do it, but because Jesus' work was done as a man. Similarly, like, we're gonna die, and we're just gonna, like, he says, you're just gonna like, sort of, find yourself in the resurrection from the dead. You don't you don't live—you you, you can live for the resurrection, but you don't live toward the resurrection. You live toward the grave in Jesus. You live beautifully in fellowship and nobility toward the grave, and then you somehow find yourself arriving at the resurrection from the dead. But don't forget all that path to the grave includes knowing Jesus the Christ, experiencing his resurrection power, and having the fellowship of his sufferings, and actually being conformed into his likeness. You see, true human nobility would see those four things and say, there's nothing worth missing any of that. Not if it's true. Those are the four most valuable things that could ever exist. To know the Creator and the Savior himself. To experience his power working in my own bones. To have fellowship with Him in the worst days of His life, knowing that He's with me in every suffering, and becoming so like Him that our deaths look the same to God the Father, and in my own character and in His, and then to just find myself at the resurrection. You can take my car. You can take my shirts. You can take my health care. You can take it all, man. If I could experience those four things, I'd do anything. Lord, as we, um, as we sing in response and as we take communion where we worship you as God, as who you are, we pray that you would enliven faith in us. I pray that if people haven't believed before, they've only believed nominally in you, I pray that right now they would give themselves some belief that they would say in their own hearts, I believe in you, Jesus, and that you would give them the miracle of the new birth. You make a new creation out of them. The old will be gone and the new is And I pray for the rest of us that you would re-enliven our faith for our joy and progress that you'd help us experience both the humility and the glory of Jesus, and that you would help us to see that all of us have an individual, truthful, image-bearing story to walk with you in the way laid out in this passage. I pray that this passage would be a favorite of ours for the rest of our lives, and then we would find ourselves somehow at the resurrection from the dead. In Jesus' name.